Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. As you know, I'm very passionate uh, about different regions, regions across the globe, Europe, the US, LATAM, Southeast Asia. We've been covering uh, the best scale-ups, uh, founders, investors across those regions. But I'm very, very passionate uh, about LATAM uh, and Southeast Asia. And uh, I would not have a better guest to represent uh, LATAM and you would know more about his vision for, for the region than Brian Rickworth, the co-founder of uh, Latitude. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and it should be after 240 plus episodes. I need to admit that I'm a, I'm a little bit uh, nervous today, which, which also shows uh, that I've almost listened to all your podcasts. So uh, which is kind of a, a, a praise to, to the great job that you are doing and, and the privilege to, to have you here. But of course, for the ones who didn't have the privilege to know more about your story, if you could quickly introduce yourself, uh, that would be amazing. No, thank you. So I'm an American from California. I found my way to Latin America, actually on a road trip. I drove from California to Costa Rica, bought a one-way ticket to Bogota, Colombia, uh, a lot of times there's a woman behind these stories. So my wife likes to say that she imported me to Colombia. So this was 18 years ago. I I stepped off, um, you know, actually, I ended up having to fly portion of that because uh, you can't drive from Panama to Colombia. So I sold my car in Costa Rica, bought that one-way ticket and stepped off the plane and plans to make it all the way down to Patagonia. Ended up spending... Uh, you know, what three months turned into six years in Colombia. And then like any, anyone that needs to kind of pay the bills, I, I couldn't get hired to do much. And so I kind of became an entrepreneur and I started a few different companies um, first as an English teacher. Um, that was how I paid the bills. And that wasn't my, my true ambition and, and quickly realized that there was a, an incredible opportunity in real estate as I had trouble finding an apartment of my own. And I ended up launching Viva Real, which is essentially a, you know, kind of classifieds 2.0 a business. Um, I read a case study from Mercado Libre and that kind of set off That's this great. inspiration. And so ended up uh, building that business and ex eventually expanding it to Brazil, where that was the kind of the main market. And then we sold the company um, in 2020. Awesome. And, uh, and maybe we, we start we start that before introducing kind of uh, latitude and, and going even even more deeper into what you are trying to do with with latitude. Uh, let's take a minute there. Really going from Colombia or being an American, coming to Latin America, uh, staying with your wife in in Colombia, and then moving to to Brazil. And of course, we have the the typical questions: Why? Why Brazil? Why did you decide to to move from from Colombia to Brazil? And uh, what has been some of your startup lessons and, and scaling up lessons with with Viva Real? If you would need to summarize. Yes. So I, I would say that the you know after six years of being in Colombia, you know I didn't set out to like I didn't have this like super clear vision of like oh I'm going to build this massive business and it was really you know this is kind of pre any venture ecosystem in the region right and so it started off just more as like solving problems uh, and solving a problem that I had. And then quickly, you know, realized after I had launched the business, 
I had got inspired by Mercado Libre, which for those that don't know is, you know, Latin America's, you know, most valuable tech company. And it's, you know, they have a bunch of different businesses today, but, you know, it's kind of a mix of like Amazon and eBay and, and PayPal and, and all kind of rolled up into one. And I remember reading the case study and I was like, identifying that Brazil was their, by far their largest market. That's and then I went and did some really simple research. I remember going to Google uh, and I, I typed in our main customers, uh, just for those that don't know the business, our main customers were real estate agencies and agents. And we basically became kind of the central marketplace where we aggregated all of the inventory and helped property searchers identify the opportunities uh, to, to either buy or rent real estate. And so when I did that, I went to Google and I typed in, you know, I did a little research on the agencies. And then I kind of looked at the volume of potential customers just in the state of Rio de Janeiro. And it was more than the entire country of Colombia. And so that was kind of a, an opportunity. And I realized that if I wanted to build a, a business with scale, I needed to go where there was a large enough market. And so that brought me to Brazil. Right. Awesome. And um, in terms of at the time, it, it, would, uh, it would be a, a very hard job to really raise different rounds of capital and uh, even having uh, some lessons or, or some insights on how to scale a company. It was very rare at, at the time and you were able to, to raise 74 million uh, US dollars uh, through your, your venture uh, in, in Brazil. So how did you see the, the evolution and uh, how has been some of the challenges that you faced as an entrepreneur at the time that you don't, that you don't want to see the new entrepreneurs uh, facing uh, again? Yeah, we're in a much different scenario and yeah. backdrop uh, today than compared to when I started, you know, back in 2009. I think I went out to go raise capital 2008, 2009. And mind you, this was the backdrop of the economic crisis, you know, where real estate was at the center, right? So um, right. that the fact, the fact right. that it was, you know, water in the desert, um, you know, meaning capital not available, compounded with a global financial crisis where real estate was at the center. It was definitely very difficult to approach investors and identify which investors would even invest in the region. Um, you know, there's always a flight to safety when there's, you know, an economic crisis like that. And so, you know, Colombia, Brazil, these are not markets that are seen as safe havens for large pools of capital. So right. I would say that the the lessons there, um, you know, I, I don't think that we're ever going to experience in Latin America uh, just the scarcity of capital that we've seen that, you know, that I saw 10, 15 years ago. That's so I don't think that'll ever, ever, will ever have to revisit that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, the, the other challenges was just really uh, building a team at that stage because right. the attractiveness of joining a tech startup in Latin America, just the mentality of, of people was not the, the risk. It was risk, risk averse. And there wasn't enough success cases that, you know, you could point to and be like, oh, you should do this because right. it's a, career, a valid career path. So everyone wanted to work in banking, uh, in consulting. And so I'd say that was some of the difficult, you know, and if you're building a company, you obviously need a team because uh, you can't right. do it alone. And so that, that obviously probably compounded even more of the challenges. Absolutely. And it makes a lot of sense because at the time there was also not a lot of scale-ups out there where you could have a kind of a second or third time executive also joining your, your company and knowing, okay, I already know how to go from series A to series B or from series B to, 
to Series C or or if we want to convert that into dollars or uh, or whatever it is um, that today we have currently and people starting specializing and helping companies to scale from one point to another or even starting up companies and going to another uh, company helping the founders to to go into from zero to one uh, or from one to five or or five to ten right so it's a very different yeah. moment fortunately. It definitely is. Yeah. I mean, the, the environment today, um, you know, if you, you know, you're just lazy if you don't, you know, if you don't kind of research and, and read because there's so much available content and there's so many, so much more available. I was fortunate to find a handful of mentors uh, that had been part of the, you know, ecosystem in the U.S., um, being part of, you know, success stories. Um, I had another person in Australia that was a really fundamental um, you know, resource for me. So I did, it took me a while, but I did find a couple, but, I, but you're right. I didn't have a lot of uh, local connections there. One, I just didn't know a lot of people in Brazil uh, when I first moved there. And then two, there wasn't, you know, kind of a, a ton of success stories where I could kind of latch on to someone that already been in the trenches. And so it was kind of an early generation of, of, of companies being started at that time. Even your co-founder, if if I'm right, um, is a, a German who was also uh, with you on an adventure in Latin America. And that's why you guys came together to to build a business, also to be able to pay your bills uh, uh, at the time. And you started thinking about business ideas, about uh, how you will sustain yourselves and 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 your families uh, at the time, right? Yeah, the motivation was like basically pay the bills and you know be able to have enough money to, you know, pay rent and buy food and things like that. So yeah, it was a, it was not like an opportunistic, um, you know, drop out of, you know, you know, leave my, right. you know, uh, business school opportunity and like identify this white space that was, you know, a huge opportunity. And so it was really more out of necessity rather than uh, an opportunistic move. And that's great also to see the ecosystem evolving in, in that sense. Of course, a lot of founders are still in, in survival mode, but we start seeing some founders that uh, definitely now uh, are joining entrepreneurship without the survival mode. Maybe then they will face the, all, always the ups and downs and the difficulties of, of building a business and they will get back into, into survival mode, but uh, th that's not the, uh, anymore the main motivation behind uh, building a business. Uh, and of course, of the freedom component that every entrepreneur loves to to have, and uh, being able to define or to design our own path, our own journey, without needing to to say yes to to a boss uh, all the time, and also having a different kind of leaders nowadays that uh, give you the space, give you the the ownership of being part of a venture, and we are seeing that also with the majority of the founders distributing much more equity nowadays. So. The executives and the teams can also benefit from feeling part of the vision, the purpose of the company, and also being owners uh, of 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 that future. Right? That that's also another uh, evolution of the ecosystem. And that kicks off a virtuous cycle because you know, I mean, I remember the you know the day that I got a phone call from you know an early employee, and they're like, "Wow, I just you know received the wire," and like you know, and and then that kind of puts them in a completely different you know place in their life where they can afford to take a risk. Um, and they, you know, were part of a, a growth story. And so they gave them not only the capital, but the skills and know-how to be able to, you know, apply that uh, to, to something else. So I think that that's something really positive that 
um, you know, historically maybe wasn't very common in Latin America. And nowadays, most companies I know, uh, they're, you know, pretty generous on the equity and that kicks off a virtuous cycle uh, of, you know, right. great companies being built and then people reinvesting the capital that they made uh, into their own, you know, ventures. Right. So you would kind of summar summarizing kind of, of course, fundraising at the time was was art. There was not a lot of capital available, especially in Latin America. Kind of building the team for each stage of growth was not also uh, easy. You're, of course, fortunate to, to find a, a great co-founder with similar motivations uh, as yours in terms of the founding team, but then transitioning into, into the leadership team. Uh, and I assume also going through that economic uh, downturn that we are kind of seeing something, I would say not similar yet, but a perfect storm that is coming on our ways um, today. And, and especially uh, in, a, in, a, in a bubble uh, that happened in, in real estate at the time that uh, allowed you to build a, a huge muscle in terms of resilience to be able to and to make your company successful over over the years and and something really jumping because i would like to cover more latitude and what comes uh what are your dreams and and what are you doing to to build a, a different future for everyone based on your experience with with viva real and being an entrepreneur yourself you have an amazing uh reputation as a as an angel so everybody says that you you are there for entrepreneurs also because you emphasize with with them given the issues that you have faced and you have been close also to uh, you said almost uh, $24 or something like that in the bank account at a certain time right 80, $87 yeah 87 okay I was even yeah. going a little bit more dramatic 24 yeah. but 87 or 24 in the context in the context uh, that you you gave uh, there's no difference between 24 and 87 it's exactly maybe an, an extra couple meals um but that's <laughs> You can't really, you can't really, you can't really build a company with that. But uh, yeah, and anyway, um, you have been involved in more than eighty uh, plus investments as as an angel. Um, when did you start investing? Because I think that this is critical as an ecosystem that the the founders uh, of the previous generation are able to, of course set up to build their own, their new ventures as you are doing with Latitude, but also um, reinvesting in the ecosystem as angels and supporting others with their experience as operators um, in the past and in your case, still in the present. Um, what has been some of your lessons learned also as an angel with this second act, not only as an entrepreneur, as a founder, but also as an angel helping other founders? The way I got into angel investing was pretty simple. Like I just you know, I had some degree of success uh, at the time, you know, I, I started scaling the company, I attracted some, you know, higher profile investors. And, you know, we were, we were seeing some really good traction in the business. And so by default, that, you know, that attracts entrepreneurs that are looking to build something, right. And so if I was a little further along, and you know, two or three steps ahead, I would get a lot of inbound interest from, you know, founders that would basically, you know, question, hey, how did you end up raising your Series B round, for example? Like, what, what was that like? You know, I, I've kind of found product market fit. I'm, I'm, you know, starting to scale the business. I need some additional fuel to, you know, kind of, you know, grow the business. And so I ended up just having a lot of conversations and gave, giving advice to founders because I found, I found myself, you know, very empathetic, as you said, because 
I remember striking out so many times with investors because there wasn't much of an ecosystem. So I remember the pain of getting rejected. I remember the, you know, kind of just aimless message that I would send on LinkedIn to try to like attract an investor and then get, you know, zero responses. And, and I didn't have a network of people that I, you know, could lean on because I didn't go to a, you know, a top school or I didn't come from a Google or a Facebook or, you know, fill in the blank. And so I really had to just kind of, you know, just scrap to get to, you know, to, to build those relationships. And so when I, when I get a cold message from someone or, you know, someone that, you know, uh, would literally just write like a relatively, you know, thoughtful message that say, Hey, I really like what you're doing at Viva Rao. Um, I, I think you're building a, a really interesting culture from what I've seen on the outside. Um, and it looks like you've had some success raising capital. I am at this stage where I'm trying to raise capital. I, I pretty much would respond to hundred percent of the messages, right? Just because I, I, I identified. And so that what I didn't realize was basically deal flow, right? Like I was just getting deal flow. And, and I would say that there's, you know, either one degree of separation or immediate connection, or even a couple degrees of separation where someone would just randomly message me. But, you know, you end up building a network of friends and people that are, you know, also in tech and probably as an angel investor, if you're a successful founder, you're surrounded by other amazing entrepreneurs. I actually regret and think back to like, you know, I remember seeing incredible stories early on, you know, before they were big, but I was so focused on my own thing that I just was like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Or I, 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 I saw it as an, a distraction when the reality is that like putting a check in another company is not a distraction. Um, you know, you can be realistic with the time that you'll spend with them, but it's an opportunity to learn. Also the secret uh, to angel, the little, you know, kind of secret about angel investing is that, you know, you're, you're helping someone, you're, you're, you know, supporting them with capital and some advice sometimes, but it's a great opportunity to learn, you know, you, you can see, you know, very close up and, and a lot of the innovative ideas. I mean, I remember talking to David Velez from Newbank before he even launched Newbank. Um, and he was like, Hey, I'm going to build a bank. You know, I, I could have learned a ton of things about the member get member strategy they had and the kind of, you know, early, early growth strategy. And so those are, those are all things that, you know, fortunately I did listen and, and identify an opportunity with a handful of early companies. And I did put a check in some really great companies that ended up becoming really big. Um, but those, but this was not like a systematic, like thesis driven opportunity. It was more of just like serendipity of, of, you know, kind of seeing the, you know, like using a basketball analogy, I was just kind of like around the basket and I, I picked up a rebound and just put it back in. It was pretty easy because, you know, when you're around a bunch of stuff, you end up seeing really good opportunities. And so I think that the lesson here for founders listening is, if you're, you know, in the ecosystem and you're, you know, relatively, you know, you're starting to get more connected and you're building something successful, you're probably surrounded by other people that are going to become incredibly successful entrepreneurs and putting 10, you know, 15K in some of their companies, if you can afford it, um, probably will pay off in the long run. That's, that's a great point. And um, yeah, it's interesting that you were also not very systematic in terms of having your own thesis kind of like just invest in these verticals of course at that time it's also related with the let's say the values of the founder that that we have in front of us and if we really believe in the vision and in the person i think it's it's even more in the person than even in 
in the vertical, right? So it's, if you come along with that person, if you if you believe that really that person can can build something big that can add a lot of value to, to society, what, what has been some of kind of your motivation behind uh, picking what were the, the founders that you wanted to be to, to invest in as an angel or not? Right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple really obvious ones. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. if I worked with someone, you know, like I worked with a guy by the name of Lucas Vargas, who, um, you know, was ended up taking over as CEO for me when I became chairman. And just I'd, I'd work with him for seven or eight years, right? So like, those are the obvious ones where you're like, okay, this person is a force of nature that whatever they're, they're going to do, like I'm in. And actually, I think that that is a, a very good in investment strategy. If there's people that you've had an opportunity to work with, or that you've worked very closely with, and you just know they're amazing, like, that's and they want, and they, and they feel motivated to go start a company, and it's in, an intrinsic kind of conviction they have, th then, you know, make a move like that, that you should support them early. And I, I love to, I, I prefer to be like the first check in those people, because, you know, I think that's where there's outsized, you know, value creation. Um, beyond that, I would say if I could only ask, if I could ask a founder, like one question, I would just ask them why they're building what they're building, what their motivation for what they're building is. Because I think that that will tell you so much because the reality is it's so hard. You know, if money is their main motivator, there's other easier ways to make money. And frankly, when it gets so hard, money is probably not going to be enough of a motivation for you to kind of push through the difficult moments. So therefore, understanding why they're starting the company. You know, if someone's starting a health tech company because, you know, they, you know, their, you know, family member suffered um, through, you know, the the terrible process of of, you know, getting cancer and then they got kind of dragged through the system. There's a really good chance that person is going to just keep keep going until they figure it out, right? Just because their motivation is intrinsically so pure. So that purity of motivation is something that I really look for. Um, other things that I look for, obviously, there's just certain signals, you know, mm -hmm. if they've worked at, you know, certain companies or they've been part of certain success, you know, growth stories. Um, there's plenty of different when I say schools, I'm not talking about the education. I'm talking about the new banks, the Rappies, the Mercado Libres. Those are incredibly good schools uh, because they, you know, they just teach you a lot of things. So I think that those are all kind of things that I look at. And then sector-wise, you know, I, I, I at one point a mistake that I probably made was that I probably saw almost every single prop tech deal, prop tech deal for like you know, several years because I had built a reputation in PropTech as a founder. And then I made a couple of really good investments in PropTech. And I, I at some point I was like, uh, one, there's like, you become less interested in what you've already done because you become jaded a little bit. Like, uh, this is like going to be really hard. And it's, and, right. and you, <laughs> and then combining with that is that you get, I remember questioning, I'm like, oh, am I over-indexed in PropTech? And the answer, the answer in retrospect was no. It's a massive sector. Uh, I passed on a few businesses that I was just like, yeah, I've already made enough prop tech investments. And they turn out to be, you know, incredible opportunities. And so I think that like if you have expertise in, in a in a vertical, then you know, you should you should leverage your expertise and you know and and you know not shy away from it just because you're maybe a little bit, you know, um, you know, 
jaded by what you know is difficult. Right. And this is something that is difficult also from a psychological perspective is kind of not getting with that advice. I've tried that and it didn't work because of course the at the time things were a little bit different. Your path is always different. Uh, I think in a certain way, this, the same happens to me in, in other ventures as advisor. I try to avoid saying that to, to new founders because uh, we never know the context and we have seen so many companies um, fail, in, and, but the timing was not right and there was other factors uh, that were not, um, that might not be a good, um, let's say, advice for, for founders who are trying to build or, or scale um, a venture. So there is here a lot of psychological traits. Uh, kind of the question is if you agree or not, right? Yeah, and it takes an outsider many times, right? When you come from inside an industry, you you know you have a certain kind of like blind spot because you're you're you take for granted what exists, and so uh, I I I think that you know betting on outsiders and and also sometimes it requires a naivete that enables right. you to just go in and just do something that seems really exactly. difficult. Right? So. Exactly. I love it. I, I think that's one of the advantage of uh, founders who are doing it for the first time. Is uh, if I, if I look back when when I started Scaled Valley, it was kind of that ignorance that allowed me to to be here after ten years, uh, helping with VC backed companies. Because I, if I knew the journey, I would never ever uh, have started uh, Scaled Valley. So that's good to know. I'm I'm talking about myself about the ignorance, not not about the, the other founders. But anyway, and and typically, just to conclude, kind of this. Uh, component of your experience as um, angel investor, would you say it would be a good time to start investing at a seed stage, at a series A stage? It depends on the founder. Uh, you were also talking about being careful to not become a distraction. At that, that time, you are also going through a lot of ups and downs as we have been discussing with your journey with Viva Real. So there is so much, so many crises to face that it, it seems a little bit crazy to even taking calls with other founders and trying to help and invest checks on, on them. So what would you say, if you would come back at Villa Real, at what stage would you start uh, investing? Yeah, I would say that once you've kind of nailed your business model and then you build a team, uh, you know, the, if, if, you are, if, if, if you're at the stage where you've kind of nailed it and you're starting to scale the operation, and your business is like highly dependent on you in every aspect, you haven't really found product market fit and you haven't really built a, right. a strong team. So I would say that like, I would not spend a lot of time. Uh, I mean, unless you're like independently wealthy and you, you just have, you know, a lot of capital and you, you know, and you, you can afford, and you have a lot of resources in your company. I mean, you could consider still doing stuff when you're pre-product market fit, but I would say that probably something around like kind of, you know, series B, like once you've, you know, you've kind of, you've, you've kind of get, you're looking for some more, you know, kind of gas to throw on the fire and you're, you're accelerating uh, an existing model that really works and it's, it's become more predictable. I think at that point, uh, angel investing is good because it, it, you're, you're, you're actually gaining a ton of insight into innovative ideas and you're talking with founders that are really thinking about things from a different, in a different lens. And I think that's going to enable you to you know, because one of the things that you, you do as a founder is that you, you know, you find the recipe, it works, and it's good to have focus. But 
you you don't want to have your head down so much to the point where you're not looking up and seeing what's out there because that's when you become complacent and you think you've got it all figured out. And so I think that a healthy dose of paranoia, uh, you know, complemented by uh, inspiration from other existing, you know, companies that are on their way up and doing some innovative things, I think is a good recipe for staying sharp. Right. Great advice. Awesome. And let's go into your uh, recent baby that is becoming already uh, an adolescent and it's growing and young adults and, and growing and growing. And it's great to see the progress and what you have built in such a short uh, period of time. So please present uh, to the community, for, for especially for the ones who didn't have yet the opportunity to, to, to listen to your amazing uh, content, to, of course, to the Latitude website, podcast, uh, now the Vamos Latam Summit, twenty-first uh, of September. If I'm not wrong, in in São Paulo. But anyway, let's let's start with with the beginning. Uh, what is Latitude? What is your vision, mission for for Latitude? And why did you start it? Sure, I'll, I'll first start off with a little bit of the motivation and the kind of the rationale to start Latitude. It was kind of started more as an accident because, really, just authentically, I gravitated towards founders and helping them. And it was the summer of 2020. Uh, you. I'm sure you, everyone listening knows kind of what was going on in 2020. <laughs> I, I found myself... Um, Some forgot, uh, Brian, maybe. <laughs> I was waiting for the antitrust to approve the sale of my company. Uh, and when I, when I kind of, you know, I felt a little bit helpless in that process because you, you, you know, you're kind of subject to this, uh, you know, government process. And so I'm just sitting here kind of in a waiting pattern. And in order to distract myself, I ended up reaching out to my network, ended up taking 150 Zoom calls from early stage founders in Latin America, you know, from Mexico down to Argentina and everywhere in between. And those calls, like two things really struck me. The first was the caliber of, you know, just talent and ambition was gr far greater than, you know, my vintage when I started. But the second thing that I realized was that there was still an incredible gap in understanding some basic stuff that I took for granted, like how to raise a seed round or how to recruit, you know, uh, an initial team and, you know, how to manage stock options, things like that. And so in those conversations, I identified that uh, this massive gap existed. And so I wanted to kind of do my part. I felt a bit of sense of responsibility to give back to the next generation of founders, uh, considering that, you know, so much was given to me. And so in these 150 Zoom calls, I just started listening to founders and I started pulling in my network. And this led to September 2020. Um, you know, I ended up partnering with Gina Gotthilf, uh, who ran growth at Duolingo and Yuri, Yuri Danilchenko, who was the you know CTO of a Kazakh-backed company that scaled in Brazil. And the three of us kind of put our heads together and we started just being a resource for these early stage founders, hosting sessions on topics, pulling in our network to host other you know, sessions live for, you know, 40 entrepreneurs in the first cohort. And it was so kind of astounding to see how much people appreciated the support. Um, so this kind of looked a lot more like a nonprofit at that point, because we had zero right. business model. Um, we ended up scaling up the cohort, building a team, I put in some money to kind of keep it going. Uh, and then we essentially evolved into a remote community that was, you know, cohort based, Today, we've scaled up to um, about 1,400 founders that have gone through 
our, you know, our, our six to eight, eight week programs, which kind of, you know, are, are usually wow. pre-product market fit companies. These companies have collectively in the last 18 months raised half a billion dollars uh, coming out of our programs. And so we, we did that initially. It was all free, equity free, everything. And then we realized we needed to kind of sustain ourselves. Otherwise it would, it would really would be something that I would just put money in every month and not have a, a business plan. Um, and so we started, you know, charging a moderate fee just to kind of pay the operations. So, you know, we did that. Um, and then two things happened, uh, two realizations became very clear as we kind of helped all these founders, we realized that there was a lot of friction still, uh, you know, we could help with knowledge and advice. So we kind of decoupled capital from advice and network. And we, you know, we helped them with the advice and network piece, but regardless, there was still a massive friction, even from those founders that were just starting their companies. One thing we realized, like, you know, I had uh, started Viveral and when in starting Viveral, I created a Delaware C-Corp, which is kind of the advised structure, at least back in the day um, from U.S. investors. But what U.S. investors didn't realize is that you would end up paying capital gains taxes upon an exit. And when I sold my company, uh, you know, earlier that year, we ended up paying over $100 million in capital gains taxes unnecessarily in the U.S. without, a, you know, without one you know, client in the U.S. or team member in the U.S. And so that was a, a harsh, you know, kind of reality that we learned quickly from experience. And so when I looked at the 90% of the venture-backed companies in Brazil that were coming through our cohort, uh, were, were looking to spin up Cayman holding companies, um, a Delaware LLC, and then a local operating company in Colombia. Uh, so all of the VC investors were kind of requiring that structure. But what I found, because I had spun up a, a few companies of my own um, as an early investor and advisor, and what I realized is that the legal bills for those companies was, you know, north of thirty thousand dollars, and they were taking two to sometimes three months to get these companies going. So, as an entrepreneur, that really kind of, you know, chapped my hide, so to speak, or you know, kind of annoyed me, and. It was the inspiration for our first product that we built, which is called Latitude Go. Now, Latitude Go is an automated company formation product where, you know, if you're starting a venture-backed company, starting in Brazil, but it quickly expanding to the rest of Latin America, instead of, you know, hiring a law firm in the U.S. and then hiring a law firm in Cayman and then in Brazil, um, you basically just work with us. We, you know, triangulate all three law firms and we built an automated process to, to basically structure the company holding. Um, and we do it five times uh, less expensive and we do it you know, faster than you would normally get with a law firm. And we do it with the exact same kind of structure that you would get if you hired a, a New York or a Silicon Valley law firm. And so um, that, that was our first product that we built. And so we realized that we wanna build products. You know, Going back to the community, we had these cohorts. You know, This became a really engaged community. You listen to the community the community kind of shares with you what the challenges are that you're facing, and then you can build software to reduce friction for those founders. So we have a whole roadmap of, you know, very founder focused roadmap where we're trying to create super highways um, and, you know, make it much more efficient and reduce friction for those early stage founders. So that's the second realization. And then the third realization is that we just started realizing that we can invest also. And that was an extension of my angel investing. And since then, I've kind of pulled the plug on my angel investing, uh, and we've launched a fund, 
the fund has 110 limited partners, all, you know, either, you know, founders, um, you know, from the top tech companies, you know, unicorn founders in LATAM, um, also coupled with GPs of the top, you know, top global funds that are also uh, LPs. And so we do pre-seed checks, pre-seed and seed checks. Um, and so, yeah, there's three business units, education business, uh, cohort-based education, uh, combined with our software stack that is empowering the next generation of founders to, you know, enable them to, you know, build, you know, reduce friction and build, build their companies. And then, you know, the, the, the venture fund. And, and kind of the, the events that you are preparing um, in next week already. Uh, it's incredible how time flies. Uh, and of course, this will be released maybe after the, um, the, the event. We are recording the episode on the 13th of September to give some uh, context. Um, this would be part of kind of your education business, business unit of coming um, or bringing the community together, right? Yeah, actually, the way I look at Latitude is we have three business units. Uh, we have the cohort education business. We have the you know software stack, and then we have the venture fund, and it's all kind of you know wrapped up in in media assets. So the podcast that I have, the book that I wrote, Viva the Entrepreneur, okay. uh, which which uh, you know I I put out before all of this, um, you know our blog, um, you know all the social media stuff that we do. All of that is, you know, we look at that as like, you know, everything kind of wrapped up in in a in a media company, um, and I'm a big believer in in the power of of media, um, you know, and you know, you've got a podcast, so you probably can relate, um, but yeah, the, so but I but it, it would probably fit more in the community, you know, and education piece because we you know we think that you know the media is you know really an, an education kind of play. So the event that we launched, it's going to be in Sao Paulo. It's called the Valmos Latam Summit. Uh, we already have 1,200 people registered, um, you know, coming from all over, you know, I think like 15 countries, mostly Brazil. And then we will host a similar event in March in Mexico City as well. By the way, where you are based uh, now, right? So you have been living in, in Colombia, uh, Brazil, uh, in, the, in the West Coast, uh, in the US, and now Mexico. I've, I've been I've been in Ciudad de Mexico, uh, Mexico City, for almost two months now, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to get more familiar with the kind of startup ecosystem here in Mexico. Also, make sure my kids uh, learn some you know learn some Spanish, and so uh, we're spending a year here uh, as I kind of go deeper into the Mexican ecosystem. And that's really amazing because then you have a, an insider perspective of the two largest markets in, in Latam with your experience with Viva Real um, in Brazil and, and now uh, living uh, in Mexico and being able also to be closer to, to the community. It sounds that uh, as, as a founder, you keep going to where the company needs to, to go and, uh, and expand and also having your, your family on board to, to do those moves. Uh, sounds fantastic. So maybe going into a, a personal component, uh, how were you able to convince your wife to always go with you to all those uh, challenges and, and visions that you that you fought for for yourself? I think that the agreement that we had early on was that as long as we had a main home that we could go back to, she would be willing to kind of jump on the journey with me. And so 
Um, in this particular case, you know, coming to Mexico was a lot easier than when I moved to Brazil because, you know, moving to Brazil in 2011, I didn't have the financial resources. You know, I was kind of, you know, uh, living in an Airbnb that was not very nice and sleeping on my co-founder's couch for, you know, a few months. And so um, that, I would say that was, uh, uh, but that was pre-kids. So that was something that we were able to kind of, you know, manage the two of us. You know, there's some non-negotiables now that you have kids, you want to be a little more comfortable. Safety is a, a, a top, top priority, schools. And so um, I think that the main uh, reason why my wife agreed to that is uh, she knows the importance of, you know, wanting our kids to speak Spanish. And so having that kind of cultural experience for a year and enabling our, our kids to be able to, that was probably the main, the main benefit. And, and then there's some also benefits just being in, in, in Mexico and in Latin America in general that, you know, um, that you don't really get in the U S uh, in terms of like, you know, help around the house and things like that. So both of us were happy to, you know, be able to, you know, have some support there with, you know, the kids and, and other things that, you know, none of us loves doing laundry. So, um, you know, that's something that, you know, we've been able to have some great support that has enabled us to kind of focus on our careers right now and our kids rather than household stuff. Right. It's, it's a very important point. We, we don't discuss this a lot in, in podcasts. We always talk a lot about business, but that's definitely uh, the personal side of the life of an entrepreneur. It's really, really important to have an amazing life partner that is aligned with, with our vision. And that, of course, we are able also to support them to be happy and to be able also to fulfill uh, their dreams. So having an husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that's, that supports, that's, that's really super, super important. And uh, we know that a lot of those entrepreneurs at a certain time need to, to travel or to go to another market. And of course, without without the family, it it, it will be even harder. Uh, let's say, or at least, communication is super important, right? No, it's fundamental. I've been married for 17 years now, so uh, we've been able to work. And uh, you know, the the I think that I remember, you know, probably 10 or 12 years ago, there's a book by Brad Feld, which is called "Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur." And I remember right, buying right. that, reading it myself, and then asking my wife to read it because you know, there are some things like, you know, being an entrepreneur is a very kind of consuming, you know, thing in your life. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people look for kind of, you know, work-life balance. And, you know, in your early, you know, kind of your 20s and your early 30s, it's it's really hard to, you know, to, to figure that out. And not, you know, let alone starting a family also, that was something that, you know, we struggled to start a family and I was starting a company and I was in another country. And so I think that I agree that those things aren't talked about as much and they're so fundamental and so important because, you know, your happiness is, is ultimately, you know, what, you know, you, you can be super successful and unhappy. Um, you can have a lot of money in the bank and be super unhappy. And, you know, I think that, you know, that, that's not a way to live. And so figuring out how to balance that. And I, and I would say that I'm not, the master at this by any means. I think that I've gotten better as I've gotten older. Um, and but but this is a constant struggle, I think, for entrepreneurs. Absolutely. And I think other of the myths, and I see now uh founders being also happy to announce that they are having babies, is uh there was this kind of advice: don't try to have a baby and have a startup at the same time. And we are seeing several founders, including yourself at the time with Viva Real, 
uh, that it's possible to to lead uh, a startup and at the same time having a family or raising the family and having uh, more kids. Uh, how has been the experience? And I know that you have an amazing story, even with the support of Monashis, with a nanny at the time. If you, if you would like to, to share us a little bit more about that, I think even for the ones who are now starting their ventures or scaling their ventures and thinking uh, it is the time we are ready to, to be parents, but we... We might be afraid about what investors would think if we are really committed with a venture or not. I think it, it would be nice to to listen from you for for the ones who are listening to us. I think that you know one one realization I had is uh, like a a new dad start you know running a company too is that um, I realized this kind of created some more I guess uh, sensitivity around the topic of like paternity leave, um, which mm-hmm. you know most companies you know like child bearing and child you know raising children oftentimes falls on the you know in the in the the responsibility of a woman and and so if you think about entrepreneurship and you think about becoming a founder that even you know accentuates even more the difficulties of you know starting a company if you're a woman and then you're you know at an age right. where you're going to have children so i think that like good point there's a, i think some special attention that should be drawn to that because you know i think that for you know, for for women, imagine you're a, a found a female founder, and then you're exactly. also. You know, I've, I've invested in some, some you know Emma Smith who runs Heffa. I remember she had you know a, a baby while she was running, and she you know she obviously took a few months off, and it shouldn't be taboo, um, right. you know, to, to be able to do that. Um, you know, realistically, it's obviously hard, right? Like it's hard no matter what. Um, and so, um, but I but I think it's manageable, and and you know, you mentioned. Uh, you know, Monashis, for those that don't know, Monashis was, uh, you know, my Series A investor along with Kazek. And, you know, they helped me with a ton of things. I'd mentioned Lucas Vargas, who ended up taking over as CEO. They helped recruit him and, you know, they helped with a handful of things. But the uh, one of the things that actually moved the needle the most for me was like moving into a new country and then finding someone that could, you know, support us in, you know, as a, having a nanny. And that like, it was such a like value kind of unlock for me because, you know, I didn't want to be like grinding all day, super tired, you know, working my butt off and, you know, and then I'm not going to be present with my kids, you know? And so figuring out the balance. And and one thing that I decided early on when I had my, my son, uh, this is in 2013, I, I made a commitment to myself that I would be home uh, to sit down for dinner four nights a week. So, you know, before that I'd probably been staying out and, you know, staying at the office till nine o'clock. Cause there's just, an endless amount of things to do. And I think that these things are just like life choices that you make. Right. And I think that, you know, there's so much pressure that you put on yourself as a founder that you, you kind of like think you have to make decisions, like whether it's going to be, you know, your family or your company. And uh, I think that that's something that I maybe at some point early on, like I, I, before I had kids, like, you know, I probably maybe neglected certain things because I was just working all the time and that probably put, you know, some strain on the relationship. But um, I think at some point you just have to make a decision about what, where you you know, what you value and what kind of life you want to have. And so I think that that's something that just needs reflection. And then, you know, life is about choices, right? You, you have to make choices in your life. You have to decide like, is this going to be, and, and I remember identifying a few people that were role models to me in terms of CEOs but they also had very unhappy personal lives. And that to me was uh, a sign where it's like, I could project out in the future and be like, where, what do I want for myself? And 
And, you know, there's other people that I saw were able to manage it. And so I, I tried to focus on asking them questions like, how did you manage this? How did you, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about making sure you prioritize what you care about. Yeah. In, even in other, the other day, I was, uh, of course, I, I shared that I've shared this on the podcast that I've, uh, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition who, who made it my life difficult last year with, with strong fatigue. So I was not able even to, to have one or two calls a day. So I would have a call and go rest to have another call in the afternoon. And, and someone, uh, of course, I shared this and someone started sharing that they have a, a friend that was leading a venture-backed company who was diagnosed with cancer and needing to kind of scale a company being diagnosed with, with cancer. And I said, wow, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really amazing uh, that's, that sometimes it's, it is possible first to, to have family, to have kids, to have your personal time, to have vacation, to be an entrepreneur, and of course, to be able to survive a, an health condition and, and keep doing what, what you love. Uh, as you said, if if we are surrounded with the right people, uh, namely our co-founders, our teams, our investors, uh, it's it definitely is, is possible to to not let's say kill our personal lives to to build the the company. Also, because we we are also involved in the venture because we believe in the purpose and because we believe that it makes sense to do that and it will be a contribution to to society. So amazing, amazing points and uh, great, great stuff that we we discussed uh, spontaneously here in the in the podcast. That I'm, I'm sure they will be useful for other founders and uh, and and, found, and and the ones who would like also to um, to found their own ventures. And um, there is also another uh, interesting story that I would even uh, recommend people to listen to your episode 100 of uh, your own Latitude uh, podcast, which explains how to involve community in raising a $13 million seed round, where you have also the, 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 the founders investing in Latitude and in the future of the ecosystem, in the future of other founders. I think that's an amazing and very inspiring story. But before going into the last segment, I would like to ask you what is coming next for Latitude? So what, what is your long-term vision and mid-term vision? What's next? What, what can we uh, expect uh, from Brian and your team? Yeah, I'd say that, you know, there's going to continue to be companies founded in Latin America over the next decade. And, you know, this new software stack to empower founders in Latin America is needed to accelerate the trend. And so I feel really lucky that we've kind of stumbled on this setup of software, community, and fund. And it really results in this kind of perfect mix for a flywheel, which I think could create incredibly strong, you know, uh, defensible positioning for Latitude when it comes to starting a company and investing in Latin America. So, you know, I think that over the next, you know, couple of years, the way I look at Latin America, and this is crazy maybe for like more developed markets, like in the US or, you know, in some places in Europe where, the idea of building startup infra infrastructure, potentially you know banking services along a continuous education platform, it may seem unfocused uh, from someone that's mm -hmm. you know not familiar with uh, with more underdeveloped markets. But when you you know you look at these markets in you know Latin America, you have an opportunity to implement a more vertical solution, and you need to do that in order to solve me more meaningful problems. So going full stack allows you to serve better customers and build moats around your business. So yeah, we're, we're very concentrated on the next, you know, five, 10 years. We want to build the super highways for, 
you know, tech startups uh, in Latin America by helping world-class founders launch, raise capital and find customers and attract talent. So the, the community is kind of the way we scale that. Um, and we, you know, layer on products that solve these major pain points in the founder's journey. And hopefully that unlocks some, you know, growth and economic progress and social mobility in the region. So uh, that's a quick kind of summary of, of how I see it. Uh, in terms of like what the most key things are is I want to get in the hands of every single venture backed startup. Um, I want to I want to be the starting point for, for them in Latin America. And so you will probably see an obsession of that over the next two to three years until we have, you know, uh, you know, kind of significant market share. And then we will, you know, continue to layer on additional products that reduce friction. Love it. Uh, clearance and really the impact of just in 24 months or, or so of helping companies raising half a billion dollars in, uh, in capital. It's, it's really uh, incredible. Super well done. Should I have asked something that I didn't ask you or any final message that you'd like to uh, share with the community before we jump into, into the usual last segment of the show? I would just say as a, as it relates to latitude, like, you know, founding a company is super hard. It's super lonely. It's um, you know, you kind of feel lost at sea sometimes. And so, you know, I think that finding your community, your tribe of people that can, you know, maybe you're one, one or two steps ahead of you is, is absolutely fundamental uh, because it enables you to kind of, you know, see around the corner. And I'd say that was a turning point in my journey is finding, you know, a handful of people that you know I could kind of depend on that would you know help create clarity for me and provide with you know some some emotional and you know uh, you know kind of support not only you know just support but like you know a shoulder to lean on but also uh, insight into what I was building I think that all those things are help you kind of create clarity as a founder and so I would suggest everybody to find their kind of community um, that can help them. And it could just be a small, you know, a small mastermind group of four or five other entrepreneurs. We called it a, the breakfast club at, at, you know, when I was building my company with, there was a handful of other founders that were, you know, scale up founders that we could kind of just lean on and share some of our, our challenges and experiences. Love it. Uh, great advice. Brian, let's go into the last segments of, of the show where I ask you a quick question and you give me a, a quick, quick answer. So if you'd have the, the opportunity to have a coffee uh, with yourself at the beginning of Viva Real, uh, what advice would you offer to your younger self? You know, this is, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting um, thought that I have. I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm trying to process it and exactly how I would articulate it, but I think as an entrepreneur, you know, and this is part of the secret of why you're able to like overcome incredible obstacles, because I think founders tend to like almost make the success of their company like a life and death scenario. And so I don't know if this advice is counterintuitive and maybe like, um, I don't think it negatively affects the success, but I would probably tell myself, you know, to not take it so seriously that, you know, it's a long game you know, where certain times you'll have, you'll, you'll chalk up an L, you know, a loss, you know, and you'll just think that like the world is collapsing. And the re the reality is that this is a 10 to 12 year kind of journey. And so sometimes there'll be one step, you know, um, you know, 
one step back, two steps forward, you know? And if you can just realize that, you know, in the scope of, of what you're building, that, you know, a, a setback is not the end of the world. I, I think that I probably, you know, and then there's part of me that's like, well, maybe that's, you know, if I'm honest with myself, maybe that's the reason why I work so hard and I push, you know, push through. So I don't know if, you know, maybe it's like the position of privilege where I'm like kind of in a point where I had some degree of success and that I get to like think a little bit more long-term and how I'm operating. But I do think that, you know, if you stay focused and, you know, realize that you're playing a long game, you will, you know, you, you'll, I think that you'll, your incremental, you know, growth will happen um, nevertheless the same, but you just won't have maybe such hot highs and lows because, you know, I think that as you get more mature and you get more experience, like you still have highs and lows, they're just the, the swings are less dramatic and it's more of a consistent climb rather than a, you know, like a falling off a cliff or a climbing Mount Everest. Right. What are you the most proud of on, on your journey so far? I think the thing that I'm most proud of is the time that I took to decide what I wanted to do next to find a balance of kind of what, you know, what I wanted to sink my teeth into um, in this next venture. It's, it's easy to just like settle for something and just, you know, go, you know, go build, um, you know, the next thing, but it really requires a lot of effort and time and processing to think about, you know, I came across this framework, which, you know, it's, it's called Ikigai. It's a Japanese framework that refers to kind of, you know, reason for being or a sense of purpose. And, you know, it's a, it's a combination of uh, what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and also um, what you're good at. So those three things kind of wrap up, you know, your passion, mission, vocation, and your profession. And so I think it's really hard to, to like, to, to strike a balance of all those things. Like it's nearly impossible. And so I'm proud that I had the patience and the authenticity to pursue something that I feel like I could work on for um, easily a decade or longer. So that's the thing I'm most, most proud of. It's so it's, less of like an accomplishment and more of the, I think, um, uh, self-knowledge to be able to put my energy in the thing that I, I think will have the greatest impact and that I can have the longest sustainable focus uh, so that I can have an outcome that I want uh, and enjoy the ride while I'm on it. The long-term focus and, and the commitment for, for the next decade of, of your life to build something that matters. Worst advice ever received? Probably the worst advice that I've heard is as an early stage founder to like project out two years and think and then hire someone that you can grow into. I think that's bad advice because when you're an early stage founder, you just need to get to the next stage. You need to stay alive. You need to be able to. So I think that like, you know, hiring for the future um, maybe makes sense once you've kind of hit some scale and you, you know, you kind of want to project out to where you're going to be. But I think it's a very bad advice for um, a pre-product market fit company um, right. because you, you're just going to have a disconnect. You know, if you hire a, a super senior sales executive and you haven't found product market fit yet, um, chances are you're just going to, you're going to be, you know, underutilizing that resource, causing frustration, 
And so you should, the advice, the opposite advice would be hire the people that you need right now to, to <laughs> tackle your, the problems immediately in front of you. Especially free product market fits. And, uh, and now the resources that you would uh, recommend a favorite book. I don't know if it's my favorite book, but the book that actually had the biggest impact on me as an entrepreneur, I remember coming across the book called by Chris Anderson called The Long Tail. And it like my brain exploded when I understood that there was this like concept of the long tail and how, you know, you could, you know, build a product or, you know, like it just made me realize why Amazon was so important and so powerful. And I think that that probably shaped me the most as an entrepreneur because it 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 kind of created a clarity and an insight into my business where I was like, oh, I actually, if I aggregate every single piece of inventory, you know, real estate wise, I'm going to, you know, build this long tail of traffic through Google and other things. So I think that's the, the book that probably had the most impact on me. Um, you know, I am re-listening to, uh, to a, a book that's not a business book, but uh, I read the, the book Shantanam, which is a very long, like thousand page book. And it's about um, a, an Australian convict, or he's actually, I think he's a New Zealand, co you know, co convict. I can't remember from Australia, New Zealand. And he ends up, you know, escaping prison and then moving to India and recreating his life in India. And it's uh, kind of a biographical story. And it's an amazing yeah. like tale that is super in entertaining. It's like a 50 hour audible. So um, wow. You know, I, I kind of pop it on once in a while and just, you know, if I want to kind of zone out and not think about business, I, I listen to that. Could you repeat the name of the book? Shantaram. Shantaram. Yeah, it's, okay. it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'll put it in the, in the notes here. Got it. Perfect. And favorite movie or series? Yeah. I'm pretty boring, man. I, I, I literally, I literally don't watch much TV um, mm -hmm. or movies that much. I have had a guilty pleasure of, um, of watching a show recently that again, like I, I um, oh, let me look. Uh, um, it's the uh, Brooklyn nine, nine. Okay. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's a complete, completely like just, ridiculous comedy and mm -hmm. i found that like one thing that you know i historically have not done is you know i find myself on my phone or you know you know reading a business book before i go to bed and then it affects my sleep because it doesn't allow my brain to rest so like this show is just like it's just absurdity to the max <laughs> and fun and and ridiculous and so uh you know it's 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 kind of like oh, The man. Office, but in a, it takes place in a police station in Brooklyn. And so um, I, I, I just, I, I like the comedy and, and, I, and I've, I've been, like, I don't really watch any shows, but for some reason I just found this show on Netflix and I've been watching it when I want to kind of like zone out and not, you know, not be in work mode. And finally, your favorite podcast. My favorite podcast. Um, I would say I have two favorite podcasts. Um, uh, so I'm sorry if I can't choose one. Again, like I'm, I'm no the plurality of like business and then you know outside of business. Yeah, My favorite yeah. business podcast is is Harry Stebbings. You know, um, yeah, 20 Minute VC. Uh, I think he does an amazing job, and uh, you know it's just packed with content. And uh, and then I, I listen to the New York Times, the Daily, 
uh, pretty regularly. And that's just kind of more current events. And just so that I'm at least kind of staying up with, you know, things that are happening in the world. Um, so those are the, the, the podcasts that I, you know, probably listen to on a regular basis. I do like Joe Rogan too. And, uh, but so I, I cheated and I gave you three, three answers. <laughs> well done, Brian. Perfect. Uh, Brian, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show. You are always welcome to come back to keep sharing your journey with, with Latitude and to discuss, of course, other topics that are important for founders. And uh, thank you so much for, for making the time. It was really a pleasure. Obrigado. A próxima vez vamos falar português quando estiver lá em Portugal e vamos bater um papo já em pessoa. Então, obrigado pelo convite. Obrigado, Brian. And vamos Latam. Vamos Latam. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye.